If you wanted to learn about Bitcoin from the guy who has read more about it than anybody else you know, well, you've come to the right place. This is a Guy's Take episode. Won't we just not... Won't it be hard to use Bitcoin? Won't it be like a huge problem because the technology is so unfamiliar to people and uh, some of the tools are so confusing and like trying to keep up with your keys? Isn't, isn't there a giant user-friendliness problem that Bitcoin has that will make some alternative like Libra or some dollar stablecoin the better option for people? So I want to take today's episode and talk about how the user-friendliness problem is going to be solved. And just by using a, we're just basically going to imagine a future that exists with all of the technologies that we, are, we have available to us and are being developed on today. So without any further invention uh, or extensive innovation in any of the current tools, just what we've really got that we know is in the bag today, what can we do with that? What could that future look like? So what is up, guys? Uh, thank you for joining me. This is a Guy's Take episode. You're listening to The Crypto Economy with Guy Swan. That is me, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we're going to talk about not just about how to solve the user-friendliness problem, but also a little bit uh, leading into another Guy's Take episode I want to do soon about why the user-friendliness problem really is just a matter of time and that it's not actually a barrier in the way that most people think of it because this is not just whether or not we decide to use the app in the same way that it's, it was never really a decision whether or not people were going to adopt the internet. Like, I think the analogy I used in the last one was that like your grandmother doesn't know, even if she doesn't use the internet or doesn't have email or anything, she doesn't realize that her phone is using the internet, that her television is probably using the internet, um, that everything on the back end, the infrastructure now is all packet switching. So there's, there was that infrastructure inversion and we all ended up using it just because it's a better system. And I think the push uh, and network effect to using a better money is going to be orders of magnitude more potent um, in uh, establishing the hardest money as the foundation for any of these new tools and systems that we build, even if we're talking about something that's totally custodial or, uh, you know, needs, is actually like a, a centralized visa payment network on top of Bitcoin. But I don't think that's going to be the reality. I think it will be there just because some people will want to use that. But I think we will solve the user-friendly problem even in a decentralized and um, uh, highly uh, ownership-secured way, like where the user is, in fact, the final owner of the coins that they have in their wallet, regardless of what any of these institutions say, um, and uh, that it is all settled on Bitcoin, and that everyone has access to that. So we'll talk about exactly what all that is. Um, and the first thing I want to hit is just that I think payments 
are going to turn into a service um, rather than just a standalone like sort of wallet and key system. It will become something where the best app is the one that is best at providing the service of low cost, um, highly available payments to anyone that they want to use that service with. And there will be a degree of risk-taking on the merchant or the service provider's side of things. Uh, and there will be multiple ways that this happens. I don't think normal Bitcoin payments will be um, restricted to anybody who wants to use them. But for everyday small payments, I think Bitcoin transactions will be thought of as settlement layer and uh, large the movement of large funds, large amount of funds that are highly secured. And when somebody's moving $100,000, they will use a Bitcoin transaction. But when somebody is spending $5, they will be using a service with which they are still able to hold their keys. Now, my sister-in-law uh, insists that I explain everything with cookies because she hates all the terminology. In other words, so I'm going to try to do that in this episode so that she can listen to this and understand what the hell I'm talking about to some degree, because I am going to get into a lot of technical specifics, at least in uh, as far as like terminology of like types of signatures and stuff. But I'll do it just for the sake of mentioning that there is a technology that you can look into if you want, but it will not be important to understanding. I will try to make it as easy as a cookie analogy. So we'll see how that goes. Um, first, though, is uh, in the episode I did with Jason Stapleton and uh, Matt, uh, we, he kind of talked about how keys are so critical to the systems. The whole, I mean, it's the rule number one of Bitcoin is not your keys, not your coins. And the, the fact of that is if you are not the one holding the the essentially the password that's the best way to think about it it's really long but it is a password that unlocks your coins on the bitcoin network and whoever does have that password is the one who owns the coins without their permission and their explicit signing you can't move the coins so not your keys not your coins but because of that you the owner of these keys has an insane amount of responsibility because if you I'm, I've done it if you lose the key if you lose that uh, it's generally stored as a passphrase which is like 12 words that you would just 12 randomized words that you would just keep you know written down somewhere or have a, a backup or something or you have it on like a little USB key or something like that and um, if you lose that you have lost your keys and it's not like losing the keys to your house, so like, oh, you got to get a locksmith to come in and replace the key. It is like burning cash. It is like, it is like taking $600 and literally setting it on fire. It's just gone. There's no hope of you getting it back when you are fully in control, when you, have, when you are the sole owner of the key. If you lose it or delete it or forget it, it's gone. So that's pretty scary for most people. Uh, particularly people who are used to using a centralized service where they can always call up the bank. And that's why I think that those types of services will continue to exist. People will prefer someone else to hold their coins for them just because it's scary. 
Um, but one of the interesting things about this is we already see it happening, and I think it will continue to happen, is that those keys will start to disappear from the user experience unless they specifically want to access them. But it will not be necessary in order to secure your keys. Remember, this is all cryptography. And one of the neat things about this is that you can split things up. You can create you know, these, these partial threat thresholds. You can share the responsibility of this. Think about it like you need a whole cookie I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher these analogies, but let's say let's say that every cookie every cookie is like a fingerprint. All right, it's unique. So the bottom print of that cookie is what you need to I don't know unlock your house or your bank account or something. You got to You got to place that cookie just the same, and you got to have the full cookie. Well, you can break that cookie into a couple of pieces, and there's an even more fascinating trick where you can require two-thirds of the cookie in order to get access. You can specifically write into a Bitcoin transaction um, that if, the, if, if you need a full fingerprint of that cookie, that all you need is to any two-thirds of that cookie. And this means that you can essentially put the key in multiple places and lose one of those places and still have access to unlock your coins. Because this thing is programmable, because you can edit and create specific conditions. Um, I mean, you can do a lot more than just break up the cookie. Uh, you can, uh, there's all kinds of other tools and like uh, locks, like specific locks and levels of complexity that you can continue to stack onto this. So one of the, one of the mobile wallets that does such a great job of utilizing this uh, that I've talked about in a number of different episodes, is the CASA wallet, the C-A-S-A. And for the mobile key, they completely get around you ever having to see or deal with it. And here's how. And they also do it without you having to uh, trust that CASA is, doesn't spend your coins. They don't have a backup of the key either. Now, what happens exactly on the back end is let's say you need the full fingerprint of your cookie uh, to unlock your Bitcoin wallet. Well, you can break that cookie in half and then seal it away in a box. And you send half of that cookie to Google and you send half that cookie to Casa. Neither one of them have the ability to break inside the box. And neither one of them, even if they broke, inside the, broke into the box, could unlock your Bitcoin. But if you lost your phone, you could log back in, request half the cookie from Casa, and request half the cookie from Google, and you're still good to go. That's, ex that's essentially what they're doing with the mobile key. After you create the key locally um, to the Bitcoins that you own locally on your device, it, it splits it into two parts and encrypts both parts and then sends one half of it to the CASA servers where you would log into your account just like anything, like Facebook or Twitter or anything. You have a username and password. And then it sends the other half to your Apple or Google Play uh, account, like your, your, your Google Drive or your Apple iCloud, just like you have with your contacts and everything. And again, you have your username and password that you already have to get into your Apple ID, to get into your Google Play account. And if you forget those, well, you call up Apple and you reset your password. 
you call up Casa and you reset your password. It's it divides up the both the attack surface and the backup of the key without ever creating a single point of failure for someone else to own your uh, or to have access to your coins. And it's just a really clever system. It's a really clever and simple system. That's not even like you're not writing like some fancy transaction in Bitcoin either. It's totally off chain. It's got nothing to do with the Bitcoin network. It's just called it's called Shamir secret sharing. But you can just break up a key into a bunch of different pieces, encrypt them, and do whatever you want with them. Uh, there's another um, there's another wallet called Ooh, I'm gonna be was is it was it Haven or he- he- Hexa Hexa. I don't remember. I found out about it at BitBlockBoom and talked to the guys for a little while. Um, and it's funny, they have a very similar system, but again, it's, it's totally off. It's just in the wallet. You have a single key, and they actually break it up into a three of five setup. So rather than needing, like, whereas, uh, uh, talk about the cookie where you need both halves in order to get it back. Well, there's a way to make it so... If you have, you can break it up into five pieces, and as long as you have any three of them, you can still get your key back. You can get the original, you can recreate the original cookie. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then with that, you can break it up into like five different locations, and, um, and then it has like this little thing where it like kind of holds your hand and gives you like a, a, a shield, um, like a health, like a shield health stat where you... It asks you to double check on your key and confirm that you've still this one's still available. Like you know, if you put one in a safety deposit box, you have one in iCloud or whatever. That you just go look and make sure it's still there, and then you you click the little checkbox, and then your shield gets bigger and stronger looking in the corner of your wallet. But it's a great way to securely hold a rather significant amount of money, um, or at least a substantial amount of money behind a single key that is not subject to the failure of a single device or a single company, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that alone is just one way that a lot of different wallets are starting to utilize just the nature of all of this, the nature of the technology to really break up and simplify the, the responsibility side of it, the, the risk in being the owner of your own key. But even better is the fact that you can do this on-chain. And what that means is essentially rather than having a Bitcoin transaction that's unlocked with one key and then uh, external to the Bitcoin system, you're breaking the key apart and doing a bunch of stuff. Well, you can also have it so rather than splitting up one key, you can have it so that multiple keys are needed to unlock the, unlock the actual Bitcoin on the network. So it would be similar to, I mean, you know, Stranger Things or uh, everybody's seen the movie where you've got to like launch the rocket or uh, unlock the big vault door or something and you have to have two people with keys and they turn them at the same time. Well, you can essentially do that programmatically in a normal Bitcoin transaction. So where this was secluded to very advanced security systems within the government and all this stuff. Well, now you can do this very simply in an app and you can get essentially that same level of security. And we can literally have fun. We can play around with all the different levels of complexity 
um, uh, within this breaking up of the key. So just like just like before, we can still take any of these individual keys and break them up into as many pieces as we, as we want. So if we think about it in the cookie example, we can split the cookie into thirds and be like, okay, as long as anybody has any two pieces of this cookie, we can unlock, um, uh, we can send the Bitcoin on chain. So if I lose the piece of the cookie that I've got in my phone, <laughs> well, I can still go to my desktop computer and then um, uh, let's say a third party service and, uh, and I can still spend my Bitcoin. Um, and then in addition is that since you can layer these, this complexity, you can create, like, let's say we do uh, a two of three and we split the cookie up into three pieces. Well, I can take any one of those pieces and I can break it up into five different pieces, put them in sealed boxes and shoot them all around the world. I can put one in Google Drive. I can put one in Amazon Drive. I can put one on a DigitalOcean droplet. I can put one in my iCloud and I can put one in the Casa servers. So I have all different ways and this can all be done automatically on the back end. That's the big key here is that the user, I mean, this sounds stupidly complex from a user perspective, and the user is not going to have to know how to deal with this. You're not going to have to know how to break up your cookie. You're just going to know, you're just going to have to know who you need to call in order to get your cookie repaired. And <laughs> this is the cookie analogy just is so stupid, but I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to see, we're going to see how this does. <laughs> but this, uh, this sort of setup is already available. This is, Casa Wallet does this, um, Green Wallet does this, uh, and they specifically do it with a a two of three setup. So you're you know splitting it up into thirds, and uh, uh, that's that's one of the cool things is that you have someone that you can go to if you lose a key. So let's say I use my desktop computer, my phone, and then I'm using the Casa Wallet or I'm using the green wallet, which is owned by Blockstream. Well, each of them in those scenarios would have a third uh, part of the key, which means that if I lose my phone or I have a hard drive failure on my computer, well, as long as I have one of the two devices, I can literally just call up Blockstream or I call up Casa on the phone. And even though neither has the ability to actually spend my coins by themselves, they have to have my signature. We can restore the third key on my new phone or my new desktop hard drive because the two of us together can sign a transaction and redeem the coins. Um, so it allows a way to, just like a banking service, if you make a mistake or you lose your password or something, you can call and get it restored with a third-party service except Every other condition in which you can do that in the current economy or the current financial system, it requires them to be a custodian. It requires them to have all of your information. It requires them to hold entirely the custodianship of your funds. The bank can deny you your access to those funds at any time they want because they are the ones holding the funds. In the condition where it is only a third key, they never have control over the funds. The only thing they can do is give them back to you if you lose one of your keys. But you need them to keep up with that key as well because if you lose two of the three, let's say that due to a very unfortunate set of circumstances, uh, you both drop your phone in the creek and on the same day, a car comes plowing through the side of your house and destroys your computer 
and that's your second key, well, then now they're gone. It doesn't matter that Kaza has one key or Green Wallet or Blockstream, whoever it is, it has another key um, uh, or, or has one of the three keys. If you lose two, you're, you're out of luck. You might as well have just lost, been holding it yourself and lost the full key or, you know, again, set the cash on fire or smush the cookie in our analogy. You smush the cookie, you can't get the cookie back to look like it was. You can't unscramble scrambled eggs, right? You can't unsmush a smushed cookie. <laughs> so again, these are all just mechanisms on how to solve the risk of the user responsibility. This is just a way to take the weight off the user's shoulder in uh, simplifying the ownership process to give them fail-safes, to give them backups, to give them somebody who can hold their hand through the process, and to give them, give them somebody they can call when something goes wrong. Now, this one might be hard to follow, but uh, this is another concept that I absolutely love, um, is that because you can stack these multi-signature things, like, like let's go back to our two of three where uh, you need two keys and any two of a group of three people, like let's say it's me, my wife, and Casa. Um, uh, need to two of us need to turn the key in order to send Bitcoin uh, or send our cookies out to somebody else. Well, a funny thing is that we can actually make that third key, the one that supposedly Casa is holding, there's no reason that that key can't be like a one of five. So, like, let's say, let's say it's, so my wife has a key, I have a key, and then we have this one of five key where as long as we call one of five people, we can get our uh, a key back, or we can get our uh, coins back. And maybe one of the, the one of five, maybe each of them offers a different fee for the service. So maybe I've got Casa, I've got Blockstream, I've got Coinbase, I've got uh, I don't know, Apple, and I've got Google. That any one of them I can call up support if uh, I lose my phone, and my wife and Google can sign to renew my key, or I can call Casa and my wife and Casa. There's no reason why I have to pick one of these services. I could make, I could split that key up and use any service that I want. I mean, hell, if they charge, if they're trying to charge a fee for it to, you know, sign and uh, redeem the coins, which I think, uh, like Casa right now is, if you need our, we offer the service for free. But if you need our uh, key in order to get the coins back, we'll charge you like 0.01% or something stupid. So it's a tiny amount of money. Um, but uh, if you need the service, like if, if I've got one of five, uh, why don't I just call them all simultaneously? Why don't I call uh, Coinbase? Uh, and, you know, their customer service is complete garbage. So I'm just stuck on the phone with them. And I'm like, ah, let me call Casa and Blockstream, and uh, Apple, and we'll see which one picks up the phone first, and then they're going to be the ones that get the fee. Everybody who makes me wait and talk to a robot for 30 minutes, well, they're not going to get paid. I'm going to go with the guy that does the service quick and easy, and I can have any one of them. I don't have to call Apple to restore my password. I can call five different companies. I can call 10 different companies. I can call 20 different companies. doesn't matter. It's based on the programming of the key. So I have the option of making it as ridiculous as I want, and I can call any service to 
renew my key. Granted, that does leave a, uh, it does increase your tax surface, but still, that's just beside the point. It's just using it, using it as an example. One of the most fascinating things about this technology is that this is the only thing, the only tool that can possibly accomplish this completely independently where the user can get this service without giving up control of their money. That, is, that in and of itself is revolutionary technology. That's a, that is a breakthrough. And I think the services that could blow up around this, that could grow up, I think Casa is a great example of one that's doing a wonderful job of building an entire stack of services and even hardware to go along with this. Um, this going to simplify that process. Um, and again, we're still in the beginning stages of this part of the market, but it's happening very quickly. And I don't see this as a huge hurdle because it is something that simply with time and innovation and the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of brains that are looking at this and wanting to solve this problem, the, the solutions will come. All right, but before we get into more... Uh, more of the user-friendly side of this, like what's the user interface going to be, and then getting into a lot of the tools in place that will make the seamless user experience that I'm going to talk about possible. Uh, uh, we will get to that after. Let's go ahead and hit our sponsor. Um, I'm going to grab something to drink. I'm not even in my Bitcoin blanket for it right now, and I'm getting a little hot. So uh, I'm going to stretch for a minute, and we will be right back. All right, so now I want to just kind of lay out a scenario of what I kind of what I see in the future, and then we'll talk about all the technologies that essentially make this possible and make it scale to the ability to essentially have hundreds of thousands, millions of users essentially all doing this at once. Um, the basic it could not be simpler, but you're you're basically you're going to download a wallet. It will start syncing in the background. It will tell you that, okay, we're syncing now, but it will just open straight to the main screen, and it will show you a balance of zero. You'll have the option to send and receive. And this is basically the case with most wallets today, and that includes Bitcoin and Lightning wallets. We'll get to Lightning in just a second. I imagine probably the most popular of these wallets will let you buy Bitcoin uh, from at least a number of these services. Uh... Uh, using probably a bank transfer, maybe even a debit card. That's iffy just because of the, the, the dyna dynamic between a Bitcoin transaction, which you cannot reverse, and a card transaction, which you can reverse. You just call up your bank. But you'll also be able to withdraw from another service, like Cash App or Coinbase, whatever it is, um, whatever, wherever you are buying your Bitcoin in, straight to this wallet and fund it immediately. It will show, it may show like a little pending thing underneath it, but it will show you your funds immediately and you will be able to send someone else funds immediately. And I think my, my inclination is that in the future we are going to pay a flat rate of the transaction amount. So like 0.05% or something of the transaction amount up to a certain point and then it will just be essentially whatever the on-chain fee is. And I'll get to all this in a second. But for the most part, you're basically just going to 
He's paying an incredibly small fee and it's going to look like one wallet. But there are going to be a ton of things happening in the background to make this possible. Very, very similar to the fact that your connection to Google might go through 13 servers. If you go and open up like your network utility in Mac or or your uh, your command line in Windows and you type in trace route and hit enter and uh, uh, use that command, it will show you what your current connection to said server is and how many computers and routers and machines that you are going through in order to get there. Your router, that, that little device with the little Wi-Fi antenna and stuff in your house, uses multiple different protocols and of course the routers built in as infrastructure of the network the ones that your isp that time warner and at&t use to get you an internet internet connection use multiple different protocols to get information and find the quickest route to your destination and it will update and change that route oftentimes while you're while you're in the middle of things essentially it will refresh that data and refresh the uh, the routing table, as it's called, which is just the essentially the update of uh, all the computers that are available to send your connection or to send your information to the next place in line to get it closer to whatever your destination is, whether it be a, a service in Canada, Google in California, or uh, you know uh, some service in China. Who knows? Who cares? In that same way, there will be a lot of moving pieces in the background of a basic wallet. And the first thing that's going to make this possible, uh, because everybody will say, the first thing you'll hear from people who are in the Bitcoin or crypto space is that, oh, but blocks aren't big enough. We're going to be paying $1,000 fees and we'll never be able to handle millions of people on the network at once uh, because it only does seven transactions per second. For comparison, when you're using your Visa card and you're buying stuff on Amazon and stuff and Christmas comes around, they will spike up to 50,000, 60,000 transactions per second sometime of people just spending like crazy during the holiday season. And they can handle regularly, like I think it's like 10,000 or 20,000 payments per second. And Bitcoin, technically the system itself, the Bitcoin network, can only handle roughly seven with the current layout of transactions so how could any of this be possible if we can you know we can't even come close to what visa is doing as far as transaction capacity this is where the lightning network comes in and i'm going to try to go back and use a cookie analogy to sort of explain the underlying concept i don't want to go too deep but just imagine first well, first we have, uh, I have 100 cookies, and the service or the server, the computer, whatever, whoever else I'm trying to use um, to get a connection into the Lightning Network, just like, just like if I wanted a connection to the internet, I would connect to Time Warner or AT&T or some service in order to get a, get a connection into that network. Well, similar... This is a little similar in the fact that you have to get a connection into the Lightning Network, except that you're not limited to a geographic location. You can connect any node in the world. There's like, I don't even know, there's thousands of nodes right now, and uh, I'm running a node. I could essentially be your time warner if you wanted to you know, rely on me to facilitate payments. All you need is a connection into 
this network. And in order to do that, both people need to uh, essentially put cookies into a nuclear-grade box. Let's imagine we've got the most delicious cookies in the world, and therefore we want them to be super secure. So we're going to put them in a nuclear-grade box where both of us have to have the key to unlock them. But what that means is that I've put a hundred, I've put a hundred cookies in a box, and you've put a hundred cookies in this box, and we cannot unlock it unless both of us open up, and then we can get our hundred cookies back. But what that allows us to do is we essentially have a proof of reserve. We essentially know that there are two hundred cookies which we could exchange between us freely, without having to go to court and get it settled. Um, which in this case is the Bitcoin network, which I, without having to send, send a transaction to the Bitcoin network, you could send me uh, uh, 10 cookies within our little box, and we could just both sign, we could both use our little key, and update, okay, 110 cookies belong to me, and 90 cookies belong to you. And we could keep doing this all day. I could send it forward, you could send it back, until, of course, we're trying to move money that... Um, that is more, or excuse me, trying to move more cookies than we have in our little box. Then we have to go back out to the overall network and do something. Now, the brilliance of the Lightning Network is that we have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of these little boxes, and we can bridge them together. So, I can shift 10 cookies to you through our box, but let's say you have another box with uh, Starbucks and you shift 10 cookies in that other box to Starbucks and now I have just paid Starbucks 10 cookies and all you have done is shift cookies from the box in your left hand with me to the box in your right hand with Starbucks. So by essentially writing this really special contract with that we need both of our keys to unlock it um, security setup, we can route cookies through a bunch of different boxes and through a bunch of different people to get to any particular destination that we're looking for. But the magic of it is, is that we don't have to tell the Bitcoin network. We have the security of the Bitcoin network because without those keys, none of the money can move or none of the cookies can move. But we don't have to broadcast it to Bitcoin. So we're not limited by that seven transactions per second. In fact, we really don't have any upper limit outside of how quickly we can get those messages from point A to point B. So we could be talking about Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even if this thing gets built out and really has the capacity and really works out the kinks and routing and we have super efficient systems and long-term people providing these services, after 10 years of development, we could be looking at millions of transactions per second. As soon as we stop using the Bitcoin transaction itself as our actual transaction, uh, or as our actual data limit, well, then that seven transactions per second is arbitrary because I can move, we could move cookies back and forth in our box and then with the box to Starbucks and a box to Apple and a box to whoever and wherever we want to send it, thousands, millions, and infinite number of times, really, and never have to um, empty our box and start a new one. 
we may have to at some point because you know maybe you end up owning all the cookies in our box because I keep spending at Starbucks and I keep spending an apple and therefore we want to close it out because now I can't send any money forward. I need to get a new box with new cookies. But if I only have to do that once every 100 transactions, that's not a big deal. Now, the important thing to realize is Lightning is just one concept of a payment network. There are many more to come. There are multiple implementations of Lightning. There are variations on this concept. There are something called state chains, which is uh, uh, very similar but uses a, a third key, essentially, with a different party in order to um, move the funds. There is... Uh, 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 there's sidechains, which essentially is uh, locking up coins with a bunch of different keys or locking up a cookies in a box with a bunch of different keys and then having your own like copy of the Bitcoin network in which only the, only the cookies in our box move and it includes cookies owned by thousands of people or tens of thousands of people. Again, it's so important to stress that this is a programmable network with programmable contracts. So we can do all kinds of crazy stuff with it. It's just limited to our imaginations of what we can take these basic Lego pieces and then build out programmatically. Now, if none of that made any sense, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. The key takeaway here is simply that we have ways of uh, creating networks that are built on top of Bitcoin that solve these problems. The main Bitcoin system is about securing the ownership as independently as possible, and the layers on top of it are where we will solve the service-related and user-related, major user-related uh, issues and limitations. In fact, something that I like to stress is that the normal Bitcoin transaction, the thing that we think of today as um, I am going to uh, send you $10 and I just sign it off and send it off to the Bitcoin network and then suddenly you have the $10 that I used to have, um, is that the that idea of a transaction will become more and more rare and what it will be used to do is to establish financial network connections. The transactions will be used to build financial networks. And the transaction itself will be something that establishes a relationship um, with you know full reserves and individual ownership of any party in this so that everybody can withdraw from the relationship um, safely and uh, but allow them to do or enact, or make payments, or um, extend details of the contract, etc., etc., do a bunch of custom things off of the network unrelated to the limitations built into Bitcoin, like the transaction limits. And that's what I think the future of the user experience is going to do, is that it's going to leverage layers on top of Bitcoin and, um, and remember, we can combine these with the shared keys. We can combine these with the hardware wallets and all this stuff. Again, this stuff can be stacked on top of each other in order to mitigate the, the responsibility issue, like how difficult is it to store my key and make sure that I don't lose it. Can I restore my key? Can I call up Casa or some other service um, in order to get it back 
in the case of uh, some failure that I do have, uh, can I send hundreds of transactions, thousands of transactions without having to worry about huge fees or confirmation times on the Bitcoin network? All of this stuff, I think, will be layered away, just like it was done with the Internet. This same process occurred uh, in the late 80s and early 90s with the Internet, where finally we started to establish these next layers, which made the confusion and the annoyance of working with uh, the Internet at the broadcast layer and turned it into uh, this far more user-friendly, uh, highly capable uh completely unique experience if y'all haven't listened to the last guys take episode about how uh, bitcoin is the seventh major stage or phase of disruption in the digital age i go into all of that crazy stuff and there is a really really fun um really fun exploration of all of that i love the concept and i think bitcoin is such a fascinating extension of just the enormous amount of disruption that digital technology is causing in our world today and how we organize, how we communicate, and our power hierarchies that uh, basically govern us. Um, I think all of it is in a major, major transition period and is one of the most fascinating topics to me. So that's why I dedicated a full episode to it uh, last week. That's Guys Take 21, I believe. All right, but back to it. So uh, there's a wallet that I have been using, the one... Uh, there's there's one called Sats app from Casa, and I do really enjoy that one. But uh, I think the one that does it slightly better, Casa, is still somewhere between the like the the normie user and the one who really understands Bitcoin. It's like a middle grade. The Sats app is getting really really close. But one I've been even more excited about just from the standpoint of, like, Casa is building an entire suite of apps and, uh, uh, like, a node, like a personal node and everything. But the app that's just a strictly, like, lightning app, very user-friendly, trying to uh, solve the issue of being able to use these higher layers um, in a very, very quick and simple fashion is Breeze Wallet. And I've absolutely loved this wallet. And all that complicated sounding stuff we did with putting the cookies in a box and using two keys and all that jazz and uh, making sure that there's a connection to Starbucks or a connection to Apple, like another box like with their cookies, etc., etc. All that stuff is completely handled by Breeze, but you are completely in control of the key to your box with your cookies in it. And... Right now, you do have to wait for a, a confirmation to begin with, but I think that will start to go away too because a service that is providing this and can offer a uh, competitive fee for basically being your, your service provider as a connection into the Lightning Network and a reliable connection that's always going to have funds available for you to move. In that role, they I think they will be able to... Uh, as soon as you open or, or start to create a channel in this lightning network um, or a like this box with cookies in it, you can go ahead and update how much any, any single person owns in the box, like how many cookies, without having to wait for it actually to confirm on-chain, for Bitcoin to actually put it in the blockchain and make it 
permanent, make it, make it a final, uh, you know, lock that box down really, really hard. Um, because I mean, you think about it, merchants and service providers already are, um, taking on the risk of, you know, credit card payments and stuff. And this is actually a much less risk. They have a lot of different things in order to, um, uh, mitigate if some user does try to cheat them or something, um, or, you know, rebroadcast a transaction. Uh, and then there are also little tools where you can essentially pay someone on this new layer, like through these boxes, but you have to wait for a bit for it to actually unlock. So it's like, here, I've sent you uh, 10 cookies in our box, but you're going to have to sit and wait for like 30 minutes before this is like fully finalized and maybe you can spend it somewhere else. And that's where you would see like a pending payment or something. But the coolest thing about the Breeze wallet and how this is like uh, going to continue moving forward is that no one ever sees, the user doesn't see any of this. They just see a standard balance and that they can send and receive Bitcoin. That's it. They have no idea. They're not even told that they're using the Lightning Network versus like a regular Bitcoin transaction. You have your key stored on the device and you can send and receive Bitcoin. And something that makes this really viable for services or like groups of people cooperating together, like if, if people are trying to make uh, one of these uh, service providers or connections into the Lightning Network, is that you can, uh, again, we have this data limit on the Bitcoin network of how many cookies we can fit into the bakery at any one time. And this is a this is a decentralized bakery. So everybody brings in their own little toaster ovens and uh, to put to put cookies to put bitcoins on the chain, you have to bake you have to bake your cookies, all right? And everybody's bringing in their own little toaster ovens and the bakery can only hold so many at once. So there's this big line of people with ovens. There's got lots of cookies in them and little toaster ovens that just have a couple of cookies in them and they're all waiting to get in. Uh, get into the bakery and plug their mess in so they can bake their cookies and uh, confirm the ownership of their Bitcoin or their cookies, excuse me. Now, there are aggregation schemes. There are signature aggregation, which means we could save a lot of space if we didn't have to keep using different, like, separate ovens, right? Like, like if I've got a toaster oven with just two cookies and the person behind me has a toaster oven with just a couple of cookies, why couldn't we use the same toaster oven and put our cookies in there together. Well, that's what something called Schnorr Signatures does, and it would get us in, because we're taking one person out of the line, essentially, it would get us into the bakery sooner. Just like everybody waiting to get their Bitcoin transactions into the blockchain, well, the fewer ovens we're using, the quicker we can get through the door and, uh, you know, plug in ours and, you know, bake our cookies. So this terribly named Schnorr Signatures, which is actually just based on somebody's name, uh, but uh, Schnorr Signatures is a uh, another uh, update or alteration to the cryptography of this that essentially allows us to put all of our cookies together in really big ovens. Like, we still need an oven for all the cookies, but if you can put 600 cookies in one oven, that's a whole lot better than having 600 little toaster ovens all cooking their own cookies. Instead, we can aggregate all of our cookies. So it takes a whole lot of less, uh, a whole lot less oven space. 
in order to cook the same number of cookies. And in doing so, rather than having seven transactions per second or seven cookies per second uh, be able to be baked in uh, this bakery, maybe we can double that to 14 cookies per second or uh, 21 cookies per second. Who knows? The only element that is a fixed size here is the size of the bakery. Everything else is just how creative we can be about orienting our ovens and our cookies and packing in things as close as we possibly can so that we're cooking as many uh, or baking as many cookies as we are as we can at one time. And of course we can fill all these ovens with these little boxes with the multiple keys and we can send thousands of transactions and move cookies back and forth while they're being baked uh, in the bakery. So in a future where everyone is making use of these tools, we could see a situation where before when we had thousands of people all storming the bakery and putting in little toaster ovens that would fill up the bakery really quick, we could see, you know, half the bakery full of just really, really large ovens that are baking hundreds of cookies at once. And most average users are actually utilizing those little cookie boxes and exchanging ownership back and forth without ever having to get in line to go to the bakery. They just they just ignore the bakery altogether unless, of course, they want to um, uh, open up the box and take the cookies out. But in the meantime, we can constantly trade back and forth without ever having to ask anybody in the bakery or try to fit our thing in the oven. Like, it's not a concern for us. And I honestly believe that we... I think onboarding hundreds of thousands, even millions of users in very short order is simply a matter of time. I think all of the necessary tools are there. It's just a matter of adopting them. It's a matter of figuring out how to use those tools properly, but I can't see any specific reason why there is some sort of ceiling on this. Um, every single time it looks like there's a ceiling, something comes from completely out of left field, like the Lightning Network, um, like side chains, like state chains, all of these other technologies that just expand the functionality, expand the features we can do, we can actually use with this thing. And ultimately, because it gets around a lot of the limitations of the underlying Bitcoin network, requires the user to know less at the end of the stage, at the, at the end of this development and this transition phase into higher layers built on top of this, the user will have to know less and less to make it work. And there are a lot of tools that will combine the different sorts of payments, whether or not it's a normal Bitcoin transaction or a Lightning payment. You'll, the user may use either one and not notice and not care, all they care is that the money was theirs and now they've sent it to someone else or someone else owned it and now it is sent to them. And one of the coolest things from my perspective is that the building of these additional layers of these new financial networks is it aligns incentives properly to build out a network for liquidity and like capital markets essentially where I am simply connecting to a node. Um, in, the, in the case of Breeze, Breeze is being something refer that they, they call, and I've heard it uh, mentioned a couple different times, I don't re exactly remember where it started, but a lightning service provider. 
They're managing the liquidity. They're managing the routes. They're making sure that you always have a way to send or receive payment. And they're taking a tiny fee in exchange for this service. And you, as the user, you don't have to know anything about how to manage channels. You don't have to know any of this stuff. You have one channel with this service. Um, and even better is that with the wallet or whatever that you're doing, you can choose any service provider anywhere in the world. There's no limitations. There's no borders. There's no jurisdictions. You can pick Apple if you trust Apple. If you don't trust Apple, you can use Breeze. If you don't trust Breeze, you can use Casa. If you don't trust blah, 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 you can choose anybody you want or you can use multiple. Um, and the, the tools to get uh, the user to... Uh, decide and figure out how they're going to use these things um, and connect to these quote-unquote service providers on the network. I fully intend to be one myself. It's not that terribly hard. You just have to be a little bit technically inclined and you have to wrap your head around the Lightning Network so that you know what you're doing. Uh, but I think this is going to get simpler and simpler because of things like autopilot and some of these tools to automate this channel management and the liquidity and you know, uh, orienting exactly how many boxes you have with how many cookies in it. That's basically what the software will do on the back end. And you might not have to do a lot. All you, your whole job may really just be making sure that you have a computer that stays online for as much as it possibly can. So you have a huge market available to you. And I mean, you, you basically have a market with no barriers. The barrier to entry to compete is practically non-existent. You don't have to create, you don't have to be a financial, uh, satisfy some financial regulations. You don't have to, you're not even a custodian. All you're doing is helping to establish a good and reliable connection into the Lightning Network for other users who you hope connect to you in order to get a very tiny fee for when they make transactions. Uh, and it'll be a fully competitive, fully open market, and that's just so crazy exciting. Um, and I think, I think it will align capital markets into this massive global decentralized set of net networks where there's no, there's no barrier to anyone, that genuinely anyone can participate with an incredibly small introductory cost, um, very small onboarding costs, and can essentially position themselves and differentiate themselves maybe in, you know, routing, just some routing mechanism or just the ease of use of your wallet software, just the look and feel of your software. Maybe maybe you set yourself up as just a, uh, uh, there's a long episode back, a couple of months back, where I said uh, the Lightning Network or the Lightning app I want to see. And I just want to see a, an, an encrypted chat app that is also a Lightning wallet so that my main use of it is just to have a set of friends um, and like just have a friend group and have an encrypted chat room essentially where we can share stuff and send each other Lightning payments easily and we're holding our own keys and all doing it within the app. And the actual Lightning payments would be the secondary function. My main function would to be have an encrypted chat. And for anybody who knows what a watchtower is, I, I won't get into it um, other than to say that a watchtower is uh, uh, with the Lightning Network. You have to make sure that nobody's trying to sneak uh, cookies out of the box while you're not looking. And uh, so 
you uh, have these uh, watchtowers where you just kind of send out just enough information for them to know uh, where to look for the box. And other people can make sure that you're not getting cheated while you're away from uh, watching your box of cookies. Well, all of my friends in this app could be my watchtowers. We could have a little neighborhood watch where we've got, you know, 10 people in this encrypted chat and we just talk about Bitcoin and we talk about stuff and we go get beers and we go to a concert together and we do all this stuff and we pay each other back within the app. Maybe even we buy our concert tickets within the app. And, uh, uh, and if I'm ever offline, everybody else is watching to make sure that nobody's cheating me. You know, I got my nine other friends all being my watchtower. They're being my neighborhood watch so that I don't have anything to worry about. Oh, and did I mention... For those of you who don't know, all Lightning payments are encrypted by default, which means that even my LSP, even if I'm connecting to Breeze or I'm connecting to Apple, they do not know where I am spending my funds unless they are the last one in the line. Unless I'm spending it to Apple, they don't know where it goes after that. I am the one determining the route. I am the one connecting to the recipient. And I am the one sending the payment to the LSP, the node that I am connecting to that's allowing me to connect into the Lightning Network, only sees the very next step it takes, and they have no idea if there's 10 more steps before it reaches its destination or the very next one was the destination. They don't know. It's completely private, even to the node you directly connect to. And all of this is just the beginning. There's so much more to explore again we've just gotten these lego pieces and we're figuring out the first couple of things that we can build with it and we're going to be building things on additional layers i think we're going to have multiple layers of this whole system i think we're going to find i i think it's possible that we'll find alternatives to lightning um that may even be better and uh i, I don't see one there may be a dominant um uh, payment network, but I don't see there being just one. I see many different ones being available to use, many different models and levels of security and levels of uh, fees to get access to. Um, and I think this thing is going to scale without any problem. Uh, like Andrea says, it will con it will fail to scale. It will fail to scale until it does. And I think all the incentives are aligned and we have so much technology at our disposal in order to solve these problems um, that I think we will easily be able to mitigate so many of the problems of the user responsibility and completely hide away the complexity and the, uh, the confusion of all of these higher layer systems that are making the data management and allowing us to cook more cookies uh, at once, all of that stuff will be obscured away and the user will see a balance and uh, they will be sending and receiving transactions almost instantly and they won't have to know the hundreds of different tools at work that ensures their coins are still entirely theirs and ensures their transactions are private. So I'm out of time, guys. I hope y'all enjoyed this episode. I hope the analogies didn't get too much. Um, uh, it's possible that they got a little bit obnoxious, but 
all of this stuff is so hard to explain sometimes. The Lightning Network is one of the most confusing things. When I first wrapped my head around it, um, there I had multiple aha moments with the Lightning Network, and it still, to this day, I have not found a simple way to explain it. Uh, it's just complicated. So if you didn't follow that, it's not a huge deal. Uh, just know what it's for and what it helps accomplish. Um, I'm going to try to make um, a number of other different um, uh, little explainers and maybe even videos or something in the future to try to make it for people who really want to do a deep dive and understand the ins and outs of the Lightning contract and stuff. I, I want to make it available, but again, it's not necessary to understand all of that stuff just to use it. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. And I will catch you all back here tomorrow. Tomorrow we are going to be reading Bitcoin is a Nonviolent Revolution by Nick Carter. Such an awesome piece. Um, I jumped on it immediately and it was worth every minute of reading. And uh, it's going to be so much fun to cover. So I can't wait until tomorrow. That is what we will be covering then. And I think right now I've got for Wednesday scheduled uh, part to the, the second section of money, Bitcoin, and time. I am getting the whole Bitcoin section accomplished. And I have just finished another chapter of the Little Bitcoin book. I am getting very close to the end of that audiobook, and I will start into editing. And hopefully that is just around the corner. I'll keep you guys updated on that. Oh, uh, and I almost forgot. Um, we have a new patron to thank. A huge thank you to Maximilian... Thank you, thank you, thank you for becoming a patron and help support turning all of this stuff into audio. If you were listening to this and for some reason the link to our Telegram group did not work, just hit me up. I'll try to find you and shoot you a message with it on uh, Twitter as well. Um, but if anybody else wants to be a patron and help support uh, this show and the work that I am doing, that would be amazing. And you can join us in the Crypto Economy Crew Telegram group. And we talk about all kinds of crazy stuff. We've had an uh, ongoing, uh, we're taking a, taking a breather for it right now, but we've had an ongoing state versus anti-state debate that has been a lot of fun. And we always keep it nice and fun. Everybody loves everybody. We're all Bitcoiners. Um, and it's just a really fun group. And I also keep you guys updated on all the stuff I'm doing on the back end. So um, it's a really fun thing. And obviously, you're also helping out this show and turning all of the greatest works in Bitcoin and the crypto economy into the audio version it deserves. So thank you guys so much. This is the crypto economy. I am Guy Swan. I will catch you all back here tomorrow. Until then, take it easy, guys.